Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Hello, long-distance listeners. It's Pastor Brian here, and it's good to be with you this Holy Week in 2021. It's our second Holy Week during the season of COVID, and so you are all invited to join us through our podcast if you can't make it to our Holy Week services. A quick note that our Easter Sunday service will be at 10 a.m. on Sunday, April the 4th, and this year we're going to have our Easter service outdoors on the Country Market Field in Ligonier. Our hope is that being outdoors, uh, those of you who are concerned about an indoor service and uncomfortable dealing with virus concerns in indoors may feel more comfortable joining us for worship when you can control your social distance. And so if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, don't hesitate to reach out to me, pastor at epiphanyligonier.org. Our message today comes from our Monday, Thursday service held at 7 p.m. on April 1st. We'll also have our Good Friday message online for you as well. And so for those of you who are distant from us, uh, know that we remember you every Sunday in prayer. And we hope that as vaccines are distributed and pandemic concerns begin to lift, we will be reunited in person very soon. God bless. As we constantly run, what father so tender is calling us. You know, there's real power in marking time. Human beings were made for things like holidays and patterns and routines. And when big things happen in our lives, we mark them with celebrations or rituals. And we do that to sear the memory of their importance into, um, well, our, our hearts and our minds and our brains. Right. This is the fun behind birthdays. We celebrate the date that we came into existence as a full human being. What could be more significant? <laughs> you know, anniversaries operate in the same way. We mark time by celebrating the date that a marriage came into being, when two people made a vow to become one person, or as you know, one flesh, as God reminds us. Now, I was reflecting recently how this year marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in September and how that means something for many of us because, you know, here in Ligonier, we're just a short drive away from the Shanksville Memorial uh, to the east. And you can tell a lot about a culture by its holidays, you know. In America, we have Mother's Day and Father's Day and Labor Day and Memorial Day and Veterans Day and Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Thanksgiving. So you can guess that those things mark what we care most about in our culture. Things like our family, our military, our workforce, our multi-ethnic culture, our attitude of gratitude. And not every culture has the same holiday. You know, in Japan, there's a holiday called Children's Day, which is a day to pray for your kids, for their health and well-being. And it's kind of like Mother's Day and Father's Day. The kiddos get a special gift. And so, you know, you can tell that in Japan, they, uh, they, they put a different importance on children than perhaps we do in America. Or in China, they observe the Qingming Festival, which is English uh, for something like Grave Sweeping Day. 
And on grave sweeping day in China, the graves of ancestors are dusted off and cleaned up and fresh flowers are put on the grave site. And, you know, you make offerings for the deceased person's uh, memory, like with their favorite food left on their grave. You know, it's very similar to the Day of the Dead in Mexico, where family altars are erected featuring photos of deceased family members. And we might say that other cultures, just by looking at their holidays, uh, value generational memory more than our current culture. In our reading from Exodus tonight, God is going to give Israel instructions on how to mark time. He's going to take whatever calendar they had been using. They've been in Egypt for a while now, probably an Egyptian calendar. And God is going to flip that understanding of holidays and calendars and dates upside down. And he's going to give the nation of Israel a fresh start. And like a baseball player calling for the home run pitch before the pitch is even thrown, God is going to explain in advance the massive paradigm-shifting, epoch-shaping event that is going to define this new calendar. And so I want to walk you through our reading today as God explains how Israel must reimagine how it marks time. Our story in Exodus picks up after nine of the ten plagues have shaken Egypt to its core. The Nile has been turned to blood, there's frogs, there's flies, there's hail, there's darkness, and all of these plagues have signaled God's oncoming judgment. Uh, But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, still refuses to grant the enslaved people uh, their freedom, the people of Israel who've been enslaved for some time. This is not the same Pharaoh we read about in Genesis not that long ago, the king who promoted Joseph to a position of power because of his relationship with God. This is a Pharaoh who refuses to give up his labor force, who takes macabre and perverse delight at the slaughter of their children and making them do backbreaking work. And so these nine plagues have not moved his stone heart. And so God is announcing plans for plague number 10, the most terrible of the plagues to come. And it's in the context of this great and terrible plague that God instructs Moses and Aaron, uh, the high priest, Moses' brother, to redo their calendars. And here's uh, how our reading begins. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you, the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. So step one says, God, I'm about to do something so monumental and huge from now on. uh, We're going to mark New Year's Day in proximity to this event. I mean, think about how big that is, right? What kind of cultural event would need to happen that was so significant that we, you and me, decided to move our New Year's Day off of January the 1st? And that's the epoch-shifting nature of what God is talking about here. He's saying, this is so big, what I'm about to do, you're going to need a new New Year's Day. And God keeps going. He says this, Tell all the congregation in Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for their household. And you shall keep it, later on he skips down, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so now, you see, the gears shift. God gives Israel a date for the new year, and now God gives them a feast. And, and he makes sure that everyone in Israel can participate, right? There's rules about if you don't have enough money for one lamb, you can split it with other families. It can be a sheep or a goat. It doesn't really matter. And, and God keeps going in the reading here. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat. 
And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So now we get to the ritual, right? Blood on the doorposts, roasted on a spit, unleavened bread, no leftovers. Uh, and the rituals even apply to the clothing too. This is what God says about the clothes. And in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. In other words, they're going to eat this ritual New Year's feast as if they're rushing out the door. No pajamas or scroungy loungies or stretchy pants here. You know, eat with your coat on, eat with your shoes tied, eat with your keys in your pocket like you're running late. So why this ritual? Why reorient the calendar? Well, God tells us in our reading, it is the Lord's Passover. The 10th plague is coming, the great and terrible plague. The one that will break the stone heart of Pharaoh and his allies. God will strike down an entire generation of firstborn in Egypt. And this would be a generation of leaders and powerful people. They're not going to make it through the night. God is going to strike down man and animal. Not even livestock are permitted to live. And in doing so, you see, God will provide and prove that he is indeed more powerful than the pantheon of Egyptian gods who supposedly rule the land. And he will put Pharaoh in his place for refusing to let his people go. And the only way to survive this 10th plague, says God, is to pack your bags, slaughter a lamb, mark your doorpost, eat your dinner quick, and sleep with your clothes on. Because freedom is coming, says God. Get ready to go. And here's how our reading ends. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. The Passover is a memorial day. It's a holiday. It's, it's an event that's been celebrated now for something like 4,000 years the Jewish community to this day remembers the great redeeming story of God, bringing them out of slavery from Egypt through the plagues and through the Red Sea. And every time they eat, right, they don't eat the lamb anymore. That's a complicated story, but they used to. Every time they eat a roasted lamb with their shoes on and their belt tight and their car keys in their pocket, they're remembering the loving act of God who sets his people free from slavery. One of my favorite bits from the writing of G.K. Chesterton has to do with uh, his the sociological idea of a Memorial Day, like Passover. Um, Chesterton wrote a collection of essays titled Heretics in the year 1905, where he critiqued and debated some of the prominent non-Christian ideologies of his time. And one of the people he interacts with is uh, Augustus Comte, C-O-M-T-E, Augustus Comte. And he discusses the philosophical idea of positivism. And um, positivism is the idea that you get all knowledge from what you could experience, that you don't have any sort of knowledge that comes from without. But that's not all that Comte is known for, because what Comte wanted to do was develop a new secular uh, atheistic religion that was dedicated to the greatness of humanity. And so this is Comte's writing in the mid-1800s. He said, look, nobody in their right mind would ever believe in God in the future. Spoiler alert, he was wrong. Uh, but he, he also believed, right, that, that organized religions served an important purpose. Comte thought that their rituals helped people suppress their selfish desires and provided this binding function in society. 
And so Comte proposed a religion where the gatherers would get together weekly. They would hear messages exhorting them to improve, to be the best that they could be. Uh, they would hear writings from the greatest thinkers in humanity's past and work on personal improvement. And Comte uh, suggested as part of his religion a new calendar. Ah, sounds familiar. A new calendar. And every month would be named after an important figure from human history. And so you'd have a, a month of Aristotle, and you could be born on the 31st of Gutenberg, and uh, you could uh, celebrate on the 15th of Caesar or something like that. And the values of Comte's religion involve uh, values like altruism and progress. And uh, in Comte's religion, graduation from university was seen as this humanist sacrament uh, worthy of, of uh, acknowledgement and praise. And so while Comte's vision for a new humanist religion never played itself out, you know, there's maybe three to five congregations of, of positivism in the world right now, um, Comte's followers... Uh, kind of got embarrassed about it. They said, uh, Comte, okay, well, we're going to divide your teachings up into the old Comte, which is, you know, all the atheistic positivism stuff, and then we're going to divide it in, in the second half, the new Comte. Uh, that's the boring, crazy stuff, uh, the ramblings of an old man. And G.K. Chesterton said, actually, uh, this sociological idea that, that, that Comte had about building an atheist religion was perhaps its most brilliant. And Chesterton said, look, most of the people who believe in Comte's philosophy would be mildly embarrassed if they dressed up as priests of humanity and lit off fireworks on Milton's birthday. But in reality, ritual is older than thought, and it is simpler and wilder than we thought. Man was ritualist before he could even speak. And so the positivists, you see, uh, Chesterton is saying, that he has broken the strength of their religion. I, Chesterton says, for one, will never read the works of Comte through. But you know, I could see myself getting quite excited about hanging out with my friends and lighting a Darwin Day bonfire. And so in the year 2021, the Passover continues. Uh, but the Darwin Day bonfire has not become uh, a trend that has caught on. It has not been a ritual. It is a relic of the past. Uh, but if the story of Exodus has spawned its own ritual, if God uh, gave us this ritual from Exodus, uh, a meal eaten with shoes on and a belt and your car keys and everything, there's another event that takes place that is an even greater act of redemption that has also spawned its own related ritual. In the same way that God met people, the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt and freed them through a divine miracle, another even greater Passover was announced 2,000 years later. While eating his roast lamb with his friends and with his shoes on and his car keys in his pocket, a rabbi from the region of Galilee makes a theologically unexpected modification of the Passover ritual. Uh, this rabbi inserts himself into a feast designed to help people remember the redeeming work of God that took place about 2,000 years ago. The lamb may be a reminder of the Exodus, but Jesus of Nazareth picks up some unleavened matzah bread from the table and makes this declaration, take and eat, this is my body, as he breaks the bread in half. And then he lifts up a cup of wine and passes it around saying, drink all of you, uh, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Just like Jesus' rescue of, uh, just like God's rescue of Israel from slavery in Egypt was accomplished by the blood of an innocent sparing a household with, of, from God's wrath, 
so are we too rescued from an all-powerful cosmic slavery uh, that has captured us as well. Whether it's the sinful desires of our heart, the spiritual destruction of the world, the wicked serendipities of Satan himself, we look to the events of Holy Week as our Passover. We are not just covered by the blood of the Lamb uh, on our doorposts, but we are covered in the blood of the Lamb of God. Our firstborns, you see, are spared, but the firstborn of heaven dies in our stead. And so Christians celebrate a dual Passover of sorts, right? There's the death, uh, the, the, the exodus of Moses. That's one part of it. But moreover, it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And some Christians do this twice a year, once a year maybe. Other Christians do it on the first Sunday of the month, and other Christians do it every week they can. And some stand and some kneel. Some use wine. Others use grape juice. Some call it Eucharist based on the Greek word for Thanksgiving. And some call it the Lord's Supper and some call it communion. How we celebrate it isn't really important to me. What's important is that just about every Christian out there has reoriented their calendars and their rituals around Jesus' death and resurrection. Just as we have done by gathering here on this Maundy Thursday. So tonight, I want you to just take a step back and reflect. What kind of cosmic event would compel you to give up 52 mornings a year uh, where you could be sleeping in and then going out with your friends to eat brunch? What kind of life-altering, epoch-changing, historical cataclysm would compel you to give away hundreds of dollars in gifts while venturing out in a cold December evening uh, around the darkest night of the year? What kind of historical shift would make you want to drink wine before noon on a day when you have to work the next day? The answer is, of course, that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain for our sins and raised for our redemption. He will one day come to judge the world, but the blood that has been smeared on the door frames of Israel has been spiritually smeared on our hearts and souls. And he will pass over the sins and offenses as he passed over the people four millennia ago. This is truly the event that marks our time. And it's in that memory of that gift that we come to the table this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Pennsylvania.